Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Chris Hodge, and I am uh, very glad to be a pastor here and glad to serve you today bringing God's Word to you. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapters and really trying to look at key themes in that very helpful book of wisdom. Now, today we are going to talk about uh, wisdom and wealth, you know, dealing with wealth wisely. Now, I have to say this before we begin. Even before we read our text, you might see in the title the word wealth and be confused. You may think to yourself, I am so glad today's message will not be for me, right? Because I've met very few people who admit to being wealthy. But let's get into an ancient Near East mindset just for a second. Do you have more than one change of clothes? This is the interactive part of the sermon. <laughs> Do you have more than one change of clothes? Yes. yes. Do you have enough food? I'm not saying the food you prefer, but enough food sitting in your house now to last a week. Yes. Anybody have enough for two weeks? I know some of you have enough for six months, just so you or where you need transportation to get from where you live to where you work or where you need to go. Yeah. Can you, for the most part, keep your house warm in the winter? You people are filthy, stinking, rich. All of you. And you've been thinking all this time that wealth was just something out there for other people. No, by ancient Near East standards, all of us are incredibly wealthy. And so it's with that in mind that we turn to God's Word and we look here for wisdom about how to deal with the wealth that God so graciously has given us. Would you please stand with me as we read from Proverbs chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 24 through 30. I will warn you to keep your Bibles open. We will be looking at a variety of passages as we look at this subject together. Hear now uh, the word of the Lord. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be the servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray and ask that God will bless us as we study it together. Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You for Your Word. We pray, O oh Lord, as we study it, that Your Spirit will help each one of us. The one who listens, that they will really hear 
that they will believe that they will be changed by Your Word. And Spirit, I pray that You will use my words to speak Your Word. Because it is Your Word that will grow us up to become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. It is Your Word, O Lord, that will bring You honor and glory. We pray that You will do this for us. And for Your praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at our text today, I really want us to look at it under two headings. One, I want us to look at the folly of relying on wealth. And secondly, I want us to see the wisdom of generous stewardship. Now, I know, I have read the books, I have seen in, you know, pastor magazines and uh, whatpastorshouldn'tdo.com, I don't think that actually exists, uh, that preachers should never talk about money. But the Bible talks about it. It talks about it a fair amount. And oftentimes, you will hear people say, well, the Bible talks about money because it's such an important topic. No, the Bible talks about money because it is such a tremendous distraction and idol that often replaces God and our affection and attention. And so the Bible talks about it. Almost all the time the Bible talks about money, it's trying to redirect you to a proper understanding and worship of God. And so we want to consider that subject here today. First of all, though, I want us to see the folly of relying on wealth. We see that in verse 28. Uh, if you look there, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Now, let's just ask the question, do you trust in riches? You know, there are two ways that we trust in riches. One is we trust in it to give us significance. That is, that we feel better about ourselves and our place in this world because of the amount of money we have in our bank account or because of the amount of stuff that we have acquired. You know, I have heard from some of our families that school has started over the last couple of weeks. And for those of you who go to school, you know, in one of those places where you go to school with other kids that aren't your siblings, you know that the beginning of school is a really exciting time. Usually, you get a new haircut. I got one. Clothes, you know, because you've, you get a new haircut. You might get some new clothes, you know, because you've grown out of the clothes from last year. And you know how it is when you go shopping for those clothes at the beginning of school. Well, when you're an elementary school kid or a younger child, oftentimes you just buy whatever mom picks off the shelf. But the older you get, the more cognizant you become of the need to have a certain kind of clothes. Now, my mother and father are here this morning so I can talk about them without y'all thinking I'm talking behind their back. But to this day, as a middle-aged man, my parents will occasionally bring up my compulsive need to have an Izod shirt when I went to middle school. Now, the reason why this still comes up is because clearly I broke the Hodge clothing budget when I wanted an Izod shirt whenever I went to middle school. Now, I didn't really care about the Izod part. I just wanted a little crocodile on my shirt. Why? Because I wanted something that said, well, I was significant enough 
to wear the brand that the cool kids were wearing. Now, I suspect that no one is walking around with crocodiles on their shirt or alligators. I can't even remember which it is now. It's been so long when they go to middle school. But I bet there's something like it. Or I bet you feel a little bit better about yourself when you pull up to work in that specific type of vehicle that you knew would make you seem more successful in life. Or perhaps it is manifest in the way the outside of your house looks. In other words, we use wealth oftentimes to signal, to project to others that we are people of significance. That's relying on wealth. But there's a second way we rely on wealth, and that is for our security. In other words, we just feel safer. We feel like things are going to be better because of our wealth. We see that uh, there in the text, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. But if you go back just one page to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 15, you'll see it says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. There it's talking about a different kind of thing. It's not significance, it's security. A strong city was a protection against the marauders and the raiders and your enemies. It was a protection against the bandits and other things like that. If we were to put a really modern translation on this, we would say, you know, our security system is our strong city. In other words, our, our wealth is our uh, ADT, you know, or our Google cameras or whatever the case may be. In other words, our money makes us feel like we're safe. Now, of course, we know that. You know, if we ever lose a little bit of money. Now, over the last several months, many of us who might uh, have some of your money in the market have been able to experience this great test. Have you felt a little less secure when you look at the value of your investments? You look over there and you say, wow, let's just, you know, use a, a round number. Wow, before I had $10,000 in my investments, and now it's only worth $7,200. How does that make you feel? Most of us, because of this little economic principle called loss aversion, will feel terrible because we'll focus on the $1,800 of investment value that has disappeared seemingly overnight. But those, I think, who do not trust in riches will say, how about that? I still have $7,200, right? It's all perspective. Do you feel more secure the greater the number in your account, whatever kind of account that may be? Or here in Colorado, I should probably say, do you feel more secure with the more gold bullion you have buried in your backyard? <laughs> or whatever the case may be. In other words, as that uh, continues to be amassed, do you feel better about it? Well, what the Bible is saying is that wealth is a poor substitute for the significance that God gives or the security that He provides. Wealth, in other words, can become an alternative to finding our significance and security in God. It's why it says those who trust in riches will fall. But what's the alternative? Well, how are we going 
to move away from the folly of relying on our riches. I think uh, in another place in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 30, we see a good alternative, and it is the alternative of contentment. Now, one writer, I, I didn't go back through all of Proverbs to confirm this is true, but one writer that I read said that this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. Now, some of you are Bible scholars. I want you to check that out after the service, you know, and then email me if I'm wrong. I know you will. I'm just saying it to give you permission. Here's the prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name my God the name of my God. There, we see that there is an alternative to relying on riches. That is being content with what God gives you. Notice the language of that prayer. You know, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful. And you say, wow, that sounds like a great prayer. If only I could pray it. If only I could remember that prayer. Well, let me, let me give you the shortened version. It was taught to us by Jesus. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, contentment is seeing that the Lord will provide exactly what I need when I need it. So that, as others have said, if I don't have it, I don't need it. If I don't have it, I don't need it. And if I need it, God will provide it. And so there, this is the contentment. This is the opportunity of saying, I don't want to rely on riches. I want to rely on you, O Lord. Notice what it says will happen if you get too much riches. It says, I will deny you. I will say, who is the Lord? Do you know that God told the children of Israel when they were going into the land of houses you didn't build, and you're going to have he said, you're going to get there, and you're going to have houses you didn't build, and you're going to have vineyards you didn't plant, and you are going to forget about the Lord your God. And do you know that still happens today? Whenever we begin to amass the stuff, and through it we get our significance, and we get our security, we often become practical atheists. That means that while we might nominally say that we believe in God, we act as though He were unnecessary for our well-being or our significance. And this is what this, what Agur, uh, the one who wrote uh, there in Proverbs chapter 30, is saying, I don't want to be like that. I want to continue to be dependent upon you. Well, so there is something better than money. There is something better to have than all of that money in the bank or all of that gold in the ground and what is it? Well, we see it over in chapter 22. In uh, verses 1 through 2, we see something better. And what is that? It's a good name. Listen to how uh, it is said here in Proverbs 22, 1 and 2. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of 
of them all. You hear what the writer is saying? Yes, we might be tempted to find our significance and security and our wealth. He says, but it's much better that you have a good name. Where does a, a good name come from? A good name comes from following God and the precepts and principles that He has given us. A good name comes from loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. A good name comes from reflecting the principles and values of God in your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community. That's a good name. He says that your reputation is worth more than all the silver and gold. And I love it. He, he adds to that in verse 2. Besides, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, guess what? You are the same before God. Notice how he says it. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of all. Did you know that? No matter what your net worth, no matter how much stuff that you literally have stuffed in your basement, you were made by God, and so was the person who has nothing. In other words, we share a common bond with all people regardless of their wealth because we are made in the image of God. And so when we help those who might be less fortunate than ourselves, we are not helping those who are less significant but people who are equal in significance to us because they've been made in the image of God. And in doing so, we are building a good name as we reflect the character and the heart of God. And so that is a good summary of the folly of relying on wealth. But we want to spend most of our time on this second section, which is the wisdom of generous stewardship. Now, I need to make two notes here for you before we jump into, let's see, the four main points of this section. I, I love it. I always feel better about myself when I only have two points. But if anybody's taking notes, I think we're really are already on like point seven. But there are only two main points, you know. Two little notes before we get into the wisdom of generous stewardship. First of all, let's talk about what the idea of stewardship really means. Now, of course, to be a steward is to be a manager of something, to be a manager of something. So, for instance, when, if and when you are being a steward of the automobile, and you have to decide right there at the counter whether you intend to be a good steward of the automobile or whether you need to take out all of the insurance, right? You know, if you plan to be a good steward of the automobile, keep it, keep it in the middle of the lane, Drive the posted speed limit, park somewhere people won't dent it, try to keep it under shelter for this season where dime-sized hail can happen at any moment. You know, you seek to be a good steward, right? Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the rental car company. And you have to give it back to them in a very similar condition to which you took it out. Or perhaps we know about stewardship in the realm of finance, where I always like to say, let's say you take $1,000 to the bank and you fill out the deposit slip. I don't, does anybody still do this? I can't remember the last time I deposited money into a bank, but let's say that we do. And we fill out the deposit slip, 
we endorse the check, we put it in the bank, we give them $1,000, and we go back a week later, and we say, you know what, I need that $1,000, can I have it back? What would you do if the bank manager came over and said, sorry, Chris, there's a little bit of a problem. The teller that you gave that money to, they just figured you gave it to them, and they're and they're in Hawaii, and they're enjoying your $1,000, and so I'm sorry you can't have it back. Would you say, well, I did, I mean, that's fine. I did give it to them, right? I mean, I did. I mean, I signed it over to her and everything. You know, No, you would say, wait, wait, there's, there's been some criminal malfeasance, right? I didn't give that person money for them to spend on themselves. I gave it to them to put in the bank, to, to make my point zero 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 two percent interest, right? You know, that's what I intended. They were supposed to manage that money for me, right? So we understand the concept of stewardship, but I think we see it uh, beautifully if we go back, uh, not just a few pages, but a couple of generations from the Proverbs that we're reading back to when David took an offering to make sure that the the temple could be built. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, he prays and he thanks the Lord for the generosity of the people. But in it, he gives us the, the kernel of stewardship. Look with me at 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 10 and following. Here is David's prayer. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all, both riches and And honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. What is David saying? David is sitting here praying and praising God for all of the gifts of the people. But he says, God, all of this is really yours. You're the one who owns it. You're the one who gave it. And we only brought a portion of it to you to show how much we love you. That is the essence of stewardship. That God owns everything. Now, I find this to be very helpful. If you were able to think about all of the stuff you have and all of the money in the bank as God's, it'll give you a different perspective on it. For instance, since I've come out here, I've noticed that after I go to my car sitting in a parking lot, I have a couple of love notches in the side of my car. Now, I assumed that someone was just really excited about going to Chick-fil-A and they just threw their door open to get those ever-decreasing chicken strips, right? You know, if you're an operator of Chick-fil-A, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. You know, Chick-fil-A is stewarding chicken very differently than they used to. But so let's just assume, let's just assume that, you know, someone was really excited. They slung their door open and they left a little love notch 
on the side of my car. And, and, and just to even it out, you know, at the TJ Maxx where I stopped after that, someone else obviously was excited about the deals on clothes and left one in my back door as well as my front door, you know. Now, I've got two options about how to respond to that. Look at what someone did to my car. Or I could say, God, look at what somebody did to your car. <laughs> right? And you laugh, but it's true. David says, it all belongs to you. That means the car that I drive belongs to him. The clothes I wear belong to him. The house I live in, well, it belongs to my landlord. Uh, the, you know, all of these things, but, and it still belongs to the Lord, just a side note. Uh, you know, so like I'm a double steward there. All belongs to him. And so when you look at that online balance, you can say, Lord, you lost a little bit in your investments. And that helps you because you recognize all I am is a steward. And I'm just here to manage what God gives me. So that's the basic principle number one. So, okay, you, you're following. We're on section two, preliminary principle number one. Now, preliminary principle number two. This term righteous in the Proverbs, notice uh, we, we see it in several places. Uh, we see it there in verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, when we see that word righteous, I think we most instinctively think, well, righteous basically means someone who follows the rules. And while it includes that, that's not the full extent of the term righteous here in the book of Proverbs. The word righteous is about someone who has aligned their life according to the principles and guidelines of God. That's part of it. But another principle of being righteous is about our relationship with the people in the community among whom we live. Uh, Von Rad, uh, one of the commentators I read, had a, had a lovely quote uh, in that regard. He said, If a man lived to what their community expected of him, then he was considered to be righteous. In other words, righteous involved doing what was expected by those in your community. He says, There is nothing good which does not also do good. In other words, righteousness is not just a, a, a sort of internal, unseen moral principle, but it is an outward manifestation of someone's character in the context of community. Or to go to Bruce Walkie's introduction to the book of Proverbs, he says that righteousness in the Proverbs is about doing good or adding to the community rather than taking away. It also has a horizontal element in our community. And so we need to know that as we look at, the, at this text. In other words, if we are going to be stewards, it's not just about what we do with the stuff God has given us. It's about what we do with it in light of the community in which God has placed us. So with that in mind, we can actually get to our real subpoints. So how are we going to have the wisdom of generous stewardship? Well, first of all, the wise steward prioritizes. The wise steward prioritizes. In other words, even though we could take God's stuff and we could utilize it in a lot of different ways, a wise steward always has a priority. Uh, we really see that 
back in Proverbs chapter 3. We've actually read it in this series. I'll remind you of it. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is a, an important principle, not only in the Old Testament, but in, in, in the New Testament as well, that the wise steward is one who prioritizes what God has given. And he makes sure to do with it whenever he acquires it or God gives it to him to make sure that he responds in generosity to the Lord. That's what first fruits are. First fruits means God has given me all of this, and the very first thing I do, my priority, is to give a portion of that to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, that was defined as a tithe, and, and in the New Testament, it blows into generous giving altogether, and, and I'm not going to go too far down that road, but we need to prioritize. So the first principle of wise stewardship is prioritization, you know, and I'll just simply ask you, is that part of your life? Is that the way you budget? If you were to sit down with a spreadsheet and say, okay, we need to budget out all our money, what's the very first thing that goes on it? Because the truth is, the very first thing you put on that budget is the thing that's most important to you, or the thing you're most concerned about, or the most worried about. What goes on first? The wise steward prioritizes. He says, well, the first thing I need to do is recognize that God gives me all things, and I need to respond appropriately in that way. Secondly, the wise steward knows when enough is enough. Notice in verse 26, this interesting couplet. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Isn't that interesting? Now, what is this talking about? Well, this is, this is talking about commerce. Now, again, we're in the ancient Near East. The primary sort of economy is agriculture. And here it is supposing that something has happened that is causing a shortage of grain. Perhaps it's wheat, perhaps it's corn. And notice it says that it's a curse. Now, it, here it's talking about the people cursing you or praying that God will curse you, as the case may be, who holds back grain. In other words, this is someone who cannot discern when enough is enough. This is a person who's already been blessed. They have a surplus of grain in an economy that's lacking it, and yet it's not enough. And so they're holding on to it. Why are they holding on to it? To make the price go up. Now, I don't know whether you all remember this or not, but a couple years ago, uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, there was a weird, it seemed to go missing right at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of them was an essential item, at least in our modern society. And of course, I'm talking about toilet paper, right? The, maybe this wasn't true in Colorado Springs, but in the Carolinas, there was a run on toilet paper. Now, I hear from a reliable source that my uncle filled his entire room above his garage with toilet paper. Now, does he still have it up there? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know how much he's had to use over the last couple years, you know. But I have no doubt that there were people selling Costco Sam-size toilet paper for a profit online. And you know what? I bet that people were praying that God would curse them, right? Right? We understand this principle 
Someone who says, look, I've got a money-making opportunity. I know there's high demand. I'm going to corner the market. I'm going to raise the price. But why would we do that? Because we don't have the wisdom to know when enough is enough. In other words, how much do I need more than I have now? That's what the person withholding his grain would say. If I hold on to it, I can have even more. But here it says, when you don't know when enough is enough, you end up cursed, not blessed. Blessed is the person who sells the grain. Blessed is the person who alleviates the needs and suffering of the people in their community. Blessed is the person who recognizes that God has given me resources to flow in my community. Uh, there is a, a great uh, author, McDonald, who very much influenced C.S. Lewis, but I've enjoyed reading many of his fiction words, George McDonald. And in one of them, it was an, an interesting Scottish principle sort of landed on me that God gives you resources partially to bless people in your community by just doing business with them. Now, this is where I can give a good pandemic story. During the pandemic, people rushed out, well, at least in some parts of the world, rushed out to buy gift cards to restaurants so that they could stay open and continue in business. Maybe some of you did that. What people were saying is, I'm going to use some of my money, and I'm going to put it in the hands of someone else who needs that money. Now, it wasn't charity. You got a gift card, so you could go back. If the restaurant made it, you could go back and eat there later. And the idea was, I wanted the resources God has given to flow in the economy to bless other people. Do we think that way in our spending? Now, I know some of you are sitting here right now, and you're saying, you know what? Uh, my wife has been trying to keep me from spending for years, but now I have a stewardship excuse. I need to bless all of the shops in my community, you know, especially the, the, the specialized bikes shop, with some of my money to bless them. Now, that's a whole other thing between you and your, and your spouse, but uh, here is this principle that we know when enough is enough, and we understand that God has given us resources to bless our community. Let's take it a step further. The wise steward is open-handed. Look again at the first two verses of our text, verse 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Here we are talking about an open-handed generosity. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the, the way the, the text reads there, uh, one gives freely. In other translations, it says scatters. And uh, as I was preparing for this message, I saw this great quote to try to understand what scattering meant. Uh, it, this is what a, a commentator named Hubbard said. He said, none of the uses of scatter suggests tidiness, care, or caution. Scatters here means distributing widely, generously, perhaps brashly, and paying little attention to where the beneficence goes. In other words, this idea for scatter is an indiscriminate, generous spreading of what God has given you to other people. In other words, being open-handed. God has given it to me, and I'm going to spread it around. 
Is that our mentality? Or as soon as I say that, have your, your shields gone up? And, you know, all the power to the shield. Did he just say be generous with what God has given? You know, all the power to the shields. Kingdom comment in the book of Because we don't want to hear that. But do you know this isn't just some random comment in the book of Proverbs, but it is a principle that we see repeated in multiple places. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul summarizes it this way. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, he's saying the Christian principle is be open-handed or... Let's go to the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. I know you love these texts, but they're in the Bible. We claim to believe it. Let's read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and following. As for the rich in this present age, that's all of you. I know we've already covered that. If you were asleep at the introduction, go back, listen to it. You're all rich. As for the rich in, the, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, point number one, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says, all of us who have more than we need, be open-handed. I like the way Jesus says it. Uh, we don't have to turn there. In Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 9, he says, use, and he calls it unrighteous wealth, to gain friends in this world so that you, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. In other words, use your money to bless others and so that they will rejoice with you for all of eternity. Is that our mentality? Or do y'all have to fire me now? You know? See, nobody's even listening anymore. You know, it's always amazing to me that Christians love the Bible except for parts like this. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. You to show that to me in the Bible. I just showed you it four different places. And uh, it is unfortunately, uh, like the band Pink Floyd said, money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. But later on, he says, but I don't see them giving any away. In other words, we know the truth about money, but oftentimes there's a block in the flow of our stewardship to those in our community who are in need. And I'm talking about the community in this church, the community outside these walls. Are we open-handed? Are we generous? I appreciate the labor of this church that we have desired to partner with people like Mercy's Gate who are helping people with their bills, helping them with food, that we help people like uh, the Springs Rescue Mission that is helping people have no home, nowhere to lay their head, and we are helping. We are giving our money. We are giving it to those people, and I love that. Or that we're giving it to the food banks and the other ministries that are around, that we are giving it to Life Network to help women in crisis. I love that. But you know what? Sometimes we can feel good about the church we belong to, given to these things, and we forget that the Lord wants us to be open-handed with our stuff, not just with the church's stuff. 
And this is, this is what the writer is saying. Why? Let's bring it home. The wisest steward. It's, it's not all of the wisest steward. The wisest steward. It's, it's great. I love it. Even though Don and I didn't prepare uh, for this beforehand, uh, he actually has already quoted this passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 9, this is what Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is not saying this to guilt anyone, but to help people who love Jesus to understand the foundation of our generosity. Our generosity is simply an outflow of our love for Jesus and our desire to be like Him. Here it says, even though he was rich, he became poor. And let me tell you, Elon Musk is a pauper compared to the rich everything It's Christ. He owned everything. All things were created through him. And yet, he was born not as a rich man, but a poor man. Not born in a hospital or a palace, but born in the feeding trough of an animal. He had no place to lay his head. Why would someone so rich become so poor Because he wanted people who were spiritually poor, spiritually sick, spiritually dead, people like us, to have a relationship with God. And so he became poor so that we might have the riches of God poured out upon us generously, so much so that the Bible could say that he who gave us Jesus Christ will not withhold anything from us. Why? Because He loves you. Because He values you. Because He wants to spend eternity with you. And so He was willing to impoverish Himself so that you might not just be a little better off, but eternally, joyfully better off if you have trust in Jesus Christ. He, of course, made Himself the poorest when He went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross because he was trying to set an example. He went to the cross because my problem isn't just that I'm poor. My problem is that I'm a rebel against God and and have offended Him in every way. And he went to a cross and there took on a poverty that was never his, and that is the guilt for sin. And he took it upon himself so that we who trust in Jesus, who believe in Him, that He is the one the Bible talks about, can have a relationship with God through Him by faith. And our promise in eternity of endless enjoyment in the riches of God. People say, why should I be open-handed and generous? Because you want to look like Jesus. Paul says, that is it. I don't give so that God will love me. I give because God loves me. I give because of what Jesus has done for me. Why would I want to hold on to the stuff God wants me to give when Jesus held on to nothing in order to gain my eternal joy in Him? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. I know that for me, and probably for others sitting in this room, this is not easy stuff to hear. Because as much as we want to pretend our stuff and our money doesn't make us significant or more secure, we know it creeps in. We know we tend to rely on it or depend on it rather than depending on you. And Lord, when we're asked to be generous, we know we resist. May we just, as we have sung early, turn our eyes on Jesus. May we consider what he has done for us. And may we ask, what will he do through us as we image him in this world? Lord, if someone is sitting here and they have never, ever taken advantage of the poverty of Jesus Christ by accepting the gift of his light in you, May they depend upon you. May they set aside relying on their stuff for significance and security and instead know that Jesus is all the meaning and all the assurity that they will ever need, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.